You're going to love this. Just love it. in the middle with you once again from Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast as heard on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation Network, Radio or Not, and... Of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. You can also download our show anytime via kpfk.org, via the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, iTunes, so you can run but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, if not uh some of these uh, republican presidential candidates this week uh from bradblog.com thank you for joining us this afternoon this evening this morning whenever you are lucky enough to be tu- uh, tuning in to our uh, action-packed adventures here uh what can environmentalists learn from history well peter dykstra uh an emmy award-winning journalist and broadcaster formerly the executive producer of cnn's science and technology division until cnn did away with its science and technology division he will be joining us to discuss his new article on the very topic uh that's uh, particularly of note history and what we can learn from it as we uh, uh fight this climate crisis it's particularly of note as the world heads to paris later this year to try and strike an international agreement on how to combat climate change And as environmentalists right now in Seattle take to the water to try to block the huge drilling rigs now on their way to the Arctic to drill in otherwise pristine waters for the first time since Shell Oil tried and failed to drill up there back in uh, back in 2012. Uh, Incredibly, they're heading back up there again this summer and they can do this, by the way. Now that global warming has melted enough ice that uh, they can get to all the uh, delicious, juicy uh, oil that lies under the sea. If they can get to it without running aground, as Shell Oil did uh, with with two of their rigs back in 2012. They've given up uh, over the past couple of years. Now they're heading back up, and the folks in Seattle are uh, taking to the water to try to stop them. I suspect we will be covering that more uh, in the days ahead, but we'll we'll be talking with Peter Dykstra in a bit about all of that and much more. The uh, the death penalty has now been given to the uh, uh, Boston bomber uh, marathon uh, Jokar Tsarnaev for his role in those uh, in those bombings that killed killed three seriously injured more than two hundred others back in twenty thirteen. Um, 
You know, uh, two, just two quick points on this. Uh, one, yeah, apparently uh, we can try terrorists in a court of law in the United States. We don't have to hold them for decades on end without charges or without trials in some offshore prison like Guantanamo. We've got a perfectly good uh, justice system that apparently can uh, can get a guilty verdict when it wants, when we actually bother to go to trial. We don't need to hold them forever without charges, at least not when we have evidence that they were involved in terrorism, and at least if we haven't blown our own case by torturing the suspects in violation of the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution, among other things, as we have obviously done uh, at Guantanamo and in other secret prisons around the world. That's one point. The other point, you know, if if killing people stopped people from killing people, people wouldn't be killing people anymore. We try this, uh, you know, killing people as punishment thing. It doesn't seem to work. And by the way, uh, if tried under Massachusetts law, uh, Tsarnaev would not have received the death sentence because Massachusetts doesn't have a death penalty. But the good old U.S. of A. does, and so it will be, as he was tried under uh, federal law. Uh, so he will be killed, though, after many years of appeals, I suspect, that will, for those of you uh, thinking that killing someone is cheaper than imprisoning them for life, it will cost far, far, far more than a life sentence would have. A life sentence without parole, it costs more to carry out the death penalty, in case you didn't know. And that doesn't even include the moral price that we pay for being one of the few non-third world governments on this planet that are in the business of, uh, of killing people for supposed justice. That's another matter for another day. In any event... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's happened this week as we've talked a lot uh, uh, over the past week about Jeb Bush and his uh, incredible, incredible meltdown. Uh, just, you know, he was the front runner for the Republican Party, at least uh, according to funds raised. And he has had a spectacular meltdown over the simplest of questions. Knowing what we know now, would you have invaded Iraq like your brother George W.? And uh, though he had eight years to prepare to answer that question, he couldn't get it right. And he's given by, uh, at my count, I think about four or five different answers over the past week until he finally said, no, no, I wouldn't. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have invaded. But we've covered that uh, plenty, and I, I, I'm really not looking to uh, pick on him or, or any of the other candidates. What I'm more interested in is the fact that, you know, I covered uh, this war as it went on over these years, the political fights over, uh, over this war, over the past, uh, what, 12 years, 14 years, whatever we're at now. I saw what happened. We all saw what happened. We were there. We knew that when we went into this thing, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And yes, the Bush administration knew that as well. But what's happening here is in the wake of uh, Jeb Bush's many blunders over the past week, the GOP, the Republican Party, and all of the other candidates who are running are sort of rewriting history on the fly. Most of them are saying, oh, yeah, well, knowing what we know now, we certainly wouldn't have gone into Iraq. But at the time, 
everyone agreed the, uh, the, the intelligence was wrong. The intelligence told us at the time that he had WMD. So, of course, we went into Iraq. That's a lie. Please don't be fooled. Please don't let these Republicans who are now running for president and, and this Republican Party overall who is trying to rewrite history and tr- try to rewrite what has happened there over the past uh, since 2003. Please don't let them rewrite the truth. So let me remind you of the facts, because they seem to be getting lost in the midst of Jeb's remarkable implosion here. The idea that the intel at the time was mistaken is not true. The intel was very clear. There was no evidence that Saddam was working on a a nuclear weapons program. Some people believed maybe that he was, but there is no evidence that he was doing so. There was none at the time. There is none now. There never has been. Now, there was a possibility that he was using chemical weapons or that he had uh, chemical weapons or biological weapons, neither of which were a threat to the U.S., and that's why the Bush administration had to talk about uh, you know, the smoking gun being a mushroom cloud and about these aluminum tubes that were being used uh, for a nuclear program. Because, hey, if it's chemical and biological, that ain't no threat uh, to the U.S. Nuclear weapons, that's a different issue. So they had to pretend there was something uh, nuclear going on despite all lack of evidence. For chemical and biological weapons, well, that was easy. We just need to send in the inspectors to find out if, in fact, there are chemical and biological weapons. And so we did send in the inspectors to find out if there was chemical and biological weapons, and they found none. They found no evidence of it. This is before the war, right? Before launching this uh, worst foreign policy blunder in American history. So we sent in the inspectors. There was no uh, weapons of mass destruction. The inspectors told the U.S. they found no evidence of mass destruction. And yet, we went to war anyway. So the evidence told us there was no WMD, there was no chemical or biological, and there was no evidence of nuclear, but we went to war anyway. This was known at the time. So for them to say, oh, we, the, the intelligence was wrong, that is a lie. Don't let them rewrite history. Now, the other key point at the time aside from the uh, claims of WMD for which there was no evidence, was that Saddam was somehow involved with 9-11. There was no evidence of that either. They tried to pretend that there was, but there wasn't. They know it. We know it. You should know it, even if the Republicans who are now running are pretending to not know it. And one of those Republicans, for example, is, uh, is, is Marco Rubio. And now, listen, with, with Jeb Bush's uh, chances seeming to be imploding by the minute, now we're looking at all of these other people who are running. There's about 20 of them. All of these other Republicans who are trying to uh, run for the nomination. Marco Rubio is one of those uh, incredibly, I don't know how, but he's incredibly, he's, he's you know, one of the... Uh, uh, front runners, I guess, uh, for this uh, Republican nomination. And he's been asked, like the others have, uh, you know, uh, knowing what we know now, would you have gone in? And they are all pretending that, of course not, no, I wouldn't have gone in. 
But it was the intelligence at the time was faulty, in which case, yes, I would have gone in because I would have followed that faulty intelligence. That's a lie. So what did Rubio say? Marco Rubio, here's the example. And uh, Daniel Strauss has been writing about this over a Talking Points memo. Uh, uh, Josh Marshall has also been writing about this and, and looking at the way there is this massive attempt, this panic to rewrite everything that happened over the past 12 years. So Rubio said, not only would I have not been in favor of it, knowing what I know now, President Bush would not have been in favor of it knowing what he knows now. That's what Rubio said during a sit-down uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations recently. But that's not true. And other candidates who have run have similar, similarly suggested that George W. Bush now considers the decision to invade to be a mistake. But that is not true. So Daniel Strauss writes, uh, has the former president ever, ever, said he wouldn't have made the decision to invade Iraq if he knew what we know now? Actually, not even close. Bush has repeatedly expressed regret over the flawed intelligence used to make the case for war, which, of course, we know wasn't flawed. Uh, he had said uh, in December of 2008, George W. Bush told ABC, the biggest regret that I have of all the presidency has to have been the intelligence failure in Iraq. Then in November of 2014, just last year, in an interview with uh, CBS News, Bush said that he did not regret the decision to invade or consider it a mistake, even knowing what he knows now. Bush said, I think it was the right decision. In response to Schieffer, Bob Schieffer, who had asked if the invasion was the wrong decision, Bush said, my regret is that a violent group of people has risen up again. So he doesn't regret having gone in, even knowing what he knows now. So for Marco Rubio, uh, perhaps next in line for frontrunner status, we don't know. We'll find out. It'll be Rubio. It'll be Scott Walker. I think it'll be Scott Walker. Uh, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul. Who knows who's going to become the uh, next front frontrunner if Jeb Bush continues to implode. Um. But for him to come out, for, for Rubio now to come out and say, oh, yeah, well, we all agree, all Republicans, uh, even uh, former President Bush agrees, if, you know, if we knew what we know now, we certainly wouldn't have gone in. That's a lie. They are trying to rewrite history. Don't let them rewrite history. So, just to summarize, before we go to a break, at the time that the war began, they knew Saddam did not have weapons of mass destruction. There was no evidence that he had nuclear, as George W. Bush likes to say, and any evidence of chemical and biological that people did think he might have. There was no evidence found for that when inspectors went in and looked themselves and then said, hey, give us another 30 days, give us another month or two just to make sure. But so far we find nothing. That was before the war was launched. And then they launched the war. And everything went downhill from there. And here we are, 12 years, a dozen years later, Republicans haven't had to talk about this for a while. Now they have to talk about it again. And now they are pretending that the intelligence was bad. But of course, knowing what we know now, we wouldn't have gone in. Even George W. Bush wouldn't have gone in. That's a lie. I don't care if you like Republicans. I don't care if you like Democrats, independents, anybody else. 
I care if you know the truth. And the Republicans who are running for president right now are not telling you the truth. I just did. This is Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Peter Dykstra joins us after this. Stay tuned. Teach them well. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Teach your children well. <laughs> Don't let them rewrite history. Oh, and let's make sure they learn from history, too, while we're at it. Uh, yesterday, uh, my producer and co-host of the Green News Report, Desi Doyen, and I celebrated our 600th episode of the Green News Report, which for those who aren't familiar with it is six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis and snarky comment twice a week. Uh, we started doing this uh, a little more than six years ago, uh, the uh, the Green News Report, and really no one at the time in the mainstream media was regularly covering uh, issues of the environment at the time. Uh, you, you would find some places in the mainstream media where they would talk about it every now and again, but you know, when it came to doing something about greenhouse gases, it was just something that really wasn't discussed out there in the mainstream, other than by you know deniers claiming nothing was going on. Um, and so that has been a long slog, and we see more coverage, I think, of the issue now, maybe. Um, but you know, not enough to be honest, and uh, particularly given if you talk to scientists, given just how bad the situation is, how bad it's getting, and how difficult it will be to undo the direction we're headed unless we take action right now. Someone who has been writing and talking about this for years, including back back in the day at CNN is Peter Dykstra, an award-winning science journalist and broadcaster who writes at the independent, nonprofit environmental health news at ehn.org and the indispensable dailyclimate.org. Peter was formerly executive producer of CNN's science and technology division before they disbanded it, but we'll talk about that if we have time. Uh, he won numerous awards for his coverage of the environment, including an Emmy and a Peabody Award. From 2009 to 2011, he was a deputy director at the Pew Charitable Trust in charge of web, print, and broadcast communications for the Pew Environment Group. He, he wrote an article this week that was published at Encia.com called Want to Change the Future? Pay attention to the past. From Mandela to MLK to McKibben, history offers lessons aplenty for climate activists, perhaps climate activists who need lessons trying to figure out how to 
uh, encourage the media to cover what's going on and mostly how to move us forward towards change. Peter Dykstra joins us now. Peter, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you. Really delighted to have you here today. Uh, all right, uh, what I'd li- love to do, because you brought up some great points about seven different you know, general points from history from which you say environmentalists ought to be able to learn. So I'd love to try to move through these seven items uh, uh, quickly and, and get an idea uh, you know, what the lessons are in each case, starting with your first one here, abolition. You write, no movement was ever more entitled to the moral high ground than abolitionism. What can climate activists learn from the anti-slavery movement? Okay, I'll bite, Mr. Dykstra. What can they learn? We can learn a little patience, uh, even if we may not have time for patience, because abolitionism took a long time. It took decades to take hold. And we had to have a really big, bloody war to finally finish things. But one of the things uh, about abolitionism, I I was fascinated to read this from uh, the essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson, freedom-loving guy, you know, tailor-made New England abolitionist stock, or at least he should be. But he was really mad at the abolitionists because he thought they were snobs. He thought they were elite and effete and removed from the issues of everyday life. And today, environmentalists have to, that isn't always the case, but environmentalists have to be careful about that. Uh, when you talk about mountaintop removal mm-hmm. in West Virginia, for example, uh, the, those people are getting hammered. They're getting hammered by their own industry, the coal industry. They're losing their mountains, they're losing their streams, and somehow they view environmentalists as the enemy. There's this mythical war on coal. Uh, we need to get a little bit closer and a little bit more attached as a movement to people across this country in cities, people of color. Uh, the environmental movement is, uh, I wrote another piece recently where I described the environmental movement as being a little too white, wealthy, and whiny. Uh, <laughs> it's a universal concern, and yet it's not held as a universal priority. Well, we have to get better at outreach. Well, you say uh, somehow uh, people in these towns have, have come to view uh, environmentalists as, as enemies. We know how. It, it's... it's uh, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry has long ago put forward environmentalists as if they are the enemy. And you have people, uh, you know, like Van Jones, for example. Uh, let me back up a second. OK, so it's similar to the to the slavery uh, movement in that the argument was made back then by slaveholders that uh, this is an economic thing. We can't afford to change. It will wipe out communities. And you hear a similar argument being made now in these these coal states. But, you know, you had guys like Van Jones years ago saying, yeah, we need to come out and replace uh, in these towns, these coal states and so forth, uh, you know, give them jobs, give, give these coal miners jobs, you know, putting up uh, solar and wind and so forth. So it seems like we had this. We had people like that. Uh, we, that argument was being made. But look what they did to Van Jones. They destroyed him. And uh, unfortunately, well, the White did. House and threw him under the bus. That, of course, that's going to happen every time, and you're absolutely right that that's a big part of it. But my concern is that environmentalists sometimes make that too easy for industry. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we've got to get better at reaching into these communities. I don't, I don't mean to pick on the Sierra Club because I think they're a terrific organization. They do a lot. They just got $60 million from Michael Bloomberg and some other philanthropists for mm-hmm. their Beyond Coal campaign. And when they presented it, 
uh, the notion, they mentioned the notion of replacing coal jobs in Appalachia mm-hmm. uh, with renewable energy jobs, but it was almost like a, it was almost like an obligation. It mm. was almost like an afterthought. If that were up front, one of the things that would happen is that politicians, Democrats, and Republicans would no longer be terrified mm. of West Virginia being a swing state in, in, in national elections. They'd no longer help Mitch McConnell. Yeah, you know, bang the drum for the war on coal and get reelected. How does that man get reelected? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> we, we need to stop making things easy. I see what you're uh, saying. Yeah, and, and and there's a there's a divide there that 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 we if we don't address it, it's going to continue, and industry is going to continue to exploit it. And so, yes, you're right; they know what they're doing, but they'll exploit it, and 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 it will be to everybody's uh, detriment. So get out in front, get into these uh, states and towns, and 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 start building the infrastructure uh, for change. Uh, and let you know, let, let fossil fuel catch up. I guess is is probably the right. argument. Yeah, good point. Uh, all right, let's move on. Marriage marriage equality. Uh, you say that a lesson can be had from uh, uh, the the passage of mar- marriage equality and the record time in which it has uh, sort of spread across the country. How how is that similar? What lesson can we learn from that? It's amazing how quickly uh, we've gone from a situation where bigotry dominated the debate, and it dominated law and the courts, and gay people uh, were discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And the walls are, aren't all down, and we still have to hear from the Supreme Court, but it's, it's, they're coming down at, at historically at a breathtaking rate. There are a couple things to point out about this. Mm-hmm. One is that a lot of people who are hostile to environmental values are libertarians. Libertarians are a big component of the Tea Party and of the far right. Libertarians, if they really are libertarians, if they're truly libertarians, have no problem um, keeping the government out of people's bedrooms. So, so there's a, there's a pressure point that's been applied there. There are other pressure points uh, in in the environment that are that are similar to that. Libertarians, for example, also love property rights. Mm-hmm. And when your air pollution and your water pollution and your fossil taint my land, and when your fossil fuels rise the seas and wreck my beach house. Those are people that also can be reached that we're, we're probably not doing a good job of reaching. There are also, uh, when you speak about libertarians, there's a, a pretty large group, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, some down in the South, and I, I think in Georgia, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I, I know you're now uh, down in Georgia, but I think there was a large group of, of libertarians who were sort of banding together, banding together with uh, progressives against these rules that we now see these Republican governments putting in place locally saying, okay, you can have solar, but you're going to have to pay a tax in order to you know, essentially not buy uh, fossil fuel energy. And the libertarians are, are joining with some of the environmentalists and saying, you know, the hell with that. It's the sun. It's free. You're not going to regulate uh, our use of solar panels. It's big here in Georgia It's uh, with some Tea Partiers. It's big in Florida with some Tea Partiers. Mm-hmm. It's also big in the state of Arizona, where uh, one of the leading conservative solar advocates is Barry Goldwater, Jr. And they've come to feel that, uh, in their philosophy, that the monopolies and the, the failure mm-hmm. to allow for choice in energy and the failure to let renewable energy compete mm-hmm. is against their interest, against everybody's interest, and against their philosophy. And so there's something called the Green Tea Party, which involves uh, groups like the Sierra Club, 
and Tea Party leaders, a, a really interesting woman here in Georgia named Debbie Dooley, uh, who are pressing the state successfully and pressing the big utilities to include renewables, particularly, particularly uh, uh, solar, but also wind power, uh-huh. in their portfolio. Uh, yeah, I think that this is a a, a really important place that uh, environmentalists can go and you know reach out to those folks who, like you say, are truly libertarian and who truly understand how outrageous it is when these when these local and state governments uh, you know get get in the way of of solar the expansion of solar on behalf of the fossil fuel companies. So there was also one other point uh, that you didn't mention under the marriage equality section here and the lessons that can be learned. Um, I would say one of the reasons uh, marriage equality has, has, has spread as quickly as it has and has become so uh, accepted as it is, is that people see, uh, you know, marriage, uh, same-sex marriages happening in their community in other states, and they go, yeah, that's not so bad. That's not affecting me at all. Oh, marriage equality, it isn't mandatory. Uh, other, it doesn't bother me at all. I would say there's a parallel, um, at least as we understand, that when people see their neighbors with solar panels on their roofs, and I guess they talk to them, and the the neighbor says, hey, I'm not paying for electricity anymore, that in those communities, uh, things like solar spreads much, much more rapidly. So it it feeds on itself. Uh, Do do I understand that correctly? Yeah, and and basically it's not just libertarians with a lot of people. If you show that something makes money, Mm-hmm. And does less harm or does no harm? Uh, the sales pitch gets a whole lot easier. Let me let me. This is a little bit of a stretch, but let me take that one step further. Sure. Another reason marriage equality is is moving ahead is that there are prominent conservatives who see this as a, as an issue that affects their own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, his mm-hmm. son, uh, Dick Cheney's daughter, for goodness' sake, uh, when they see these things in their own family. Uh, they don't want to seem like they're bigots to their own family members. And there are parallels to that in the environment. I just read a fascinating story from uh, the Detroit News in Michigan. Congressman Fred Upton, he heads the Energy Committee in the House. Uh, he's a climate denier. Mm-hmm. He's very hostile to uh, any kind of environmental regulation. But he is leading the fight on an environmental bill to clean up microbead plastic in the Great Lakes because it's in his backyard mm. and therefore in his interest. And I, I hope you're right, and I hope other politicians uh, get that same message when it's in their backyard, although I must say I don't take much encouragement looking at what happened after uh, Hurricane Sandy. You know, you still have people like uh, uh, Chris Christie who seems to be denying, at least denying the need for action quickly. You see a lot of people down in Florida. You know, Marco Rubio, uh, Florida, the state of Florida is going to disappear uh, in in the not too distant future. And a lot of these Florida Florida politicians are still as denialist as ever. But I hope you're in right. In 2007, uh, Marco Rubio was um, uh, was talking up the opportunities to address climate change for South Florida, uh, but he wasn't running for president then. W- which year was that? Did you say? 2007. 2007. And if you notice, there was a lot of Republicans back in 2007 and 2008, including John McCain, Sarah Palin, Mitt Romney, George Bush, who all wanted to take climate action. And then uh, something happened at the Supreme Court in 2010, the uh, Citizens United decision. uh, And after that, Good luck finding a Republican willing to do the right thing. Uh, you know, we had Bob Inglis, Congressman Bob Inglis, who is willing to do the right thing, and he got tossed out of office 
because of it. So I think that message has been uh, very clear since 2010. If you're a Republican, you better start pretending to not understand science. And there are other Republicans uh, who will speak up, uh, and they all have the word former in front of their title. They're not running for office. Former Senator John Warner, former Senator Richard Lugar, uh, and and like Bob Inglis, former Congressman Inglis, uh, they'll speak up because uh, uh, they see um, the peril, Mm-hmm. And they don't have to worry about the peril of losing their jobs in Congress. But I think we're at a point where the tide will turn, and if you count votes, you will no longer count them in the direction of climate denial. Boy, I hope you're right. We'll find out. Uh, I'm speaking with Peter Dykstra uh, of the Environmental Health News, org. Okay, uh, moving on to uh, the ozone layer. This was interesting. Um Because you're right. Uh, You write that in a relatively short period during the 1970s and 80s, we discovered the depletion of the world's uh, stratospheric ozone layer and then fixed it. We didn't have the huge fight that we're having over uh, uh, carbon dioxide, but it seems like it might have been because at the time there were Republicans in office, Ronald Reagan and, and George Bush. And those treaties, those international treaties sort of went off without the fight that we're seeing over uh, an international treaty now. In fact, you even had Margaret Thatcher. Let me play this quick clip, if I could, Peter, um, from uh, Margaret Thatcher, also one of the great icons of conservatism, talking about uh, what needed to be done when it came to uh, chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone layer. We now know, too, that great damage is being done to the ozone layer by the production of halons and chlorofluorocarbons. But at least we have recognized that reducing and eventually stopping the emission of CFCs is one positive thing we can do about the menacing accumulation of greenhouse gases. That was Margaret Thatcher back in the 80s. She talked about it. Reagan talked about it. Bush uh, Sr. talked about it. And it was done. We fixed it, Peter. We are on the way to fixing it, and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were a big part of making that happen. That all comes with the disclaimer that Reagan's overall environmental record was still hideous. But on this one issue, common sense prevailed. They looked to the future, and they did something. That you, that that is contrast with today, yeah. when it seems climate denial is how you earn a conservative merit badge. Hopefully, we can get beyond that. Uh, even Margaret Thatcher, uh, way back then, was talking about climate change and greenhouse gases. It wasn't just ozone. And yes, they did take action when you know the planet was in peril. Even if Reagan had a terrible environmental record, when they said, "Hey, you know the planet Earth is is at risk," they did take action. And even Margaret Thatcher talked about taking action at the time on greenhouse gases. We have this, I think, an amazing clip that is as uh, important today as it was when she uttered it back in the 80s. It is mankind and his activities which are changing the environment of our planet in damaging and dangerous ways. The problem of global climate change is one that affects us all, and action will only be effective if it's taken at the international level. There's no good squabbling over who is responsible or who should pay. Each country has to contribute, and those countries who are industrialized must contribute more to help those who are not. These protocols must be binding, 
there must be effective regimes to supervise and monitor their application. That was Margaret Thatcher in the 80s. We could use Margaret Thatcher at the U.N. summit in uh, in Paris later this year, Peter Dykstra. Well, it's, um, uh, again, Reagan and, Reagan and Thatcher have, um, uh, have a lot of um, real serious fallacies historically on, on the environment. But on these issues, you're absolutely right. And as clips speak for themselves, uh, they pointed out uh, what scientists were telling them because they listened to scientists. And today we've, we've, uh, uh, we've got a culture of denial where scientists and environmentalists and even journalists are said to be in it for the money pushing this climate scam and the oil and coal companies aren't. Go figure. Uh, we've got just uh, another minute or two here, uh, Peter Dykstra, and you've got uh, three or four more points from history. Um, Vietnam, motivated self-interest and a mobilized media, the U.S. civil rights movement, uh, the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, the movement learning from its own past. Uh, let, let me let you pick one here uh, of those four. Uh, what, what's the most important that we should uh, that we should cover here before I let you go? Well, it's important, but it may be a long shot to see how much both Vietnam and the civil rights movement mm -hmm. used the power of the media and the power of television. Media was different then. People like Walter Cronkite, uh, who was called the most trusted man in America, he was also the highest-rated uh, highest TV news anchor. You know who the highest-rated TV news anchor has been for the last five years? Brian Williams. I don't mm -hmm. think he's the most trusted man in America anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. But if, if there is a sea change in the way that media takes these issues seriously, if we can turn back at least a little bit from the prevailing culture in mainstream media being tilted toward entertainment, mm -hmm. if we can talk about the Arctic a little bit more than we talk about the Kardashians, then that can be a powerful agent to, to moving politicians, moving the public, and getting things done. You're right. Uh, of course, that should happen. But I wonder if it can happen. And I think you're in a great position to speak about it. You were the uh, formerly the executive producer of CNN Science and Technology Division. And then amidst uh, sort of the, the, the worst battles about the environment and global warming, boom, CNN did away, as I understand it, with its entire uh, science and technology division. If CNN is going to do that, what hope do you have, Peter Dykstra, for the rest of the media getting their act together and uh, you know, being that important voice that uh, Walter Cronkite once was and now apparently nobody is? Well, common sense doesn't always do the trick, uh, but you have to appeal to people's common sense and also appeal to their self-interest because it's just going to become more and more apparent that everyone has a lot at stake with climate change and with a whole host of environmental issues. And not only do we in this day have a huge stake in it, but the people we'll leave this planet for are going to have an even bigger stake. So we just have to keep pressing. Do you have any sense that CNN is having second thoughts, that maybe they got it wrong, and maybe they'll turn around and start reporting uh, on environmental news, as especially as we get closer to the... Uh, to the climate uh, talks in, in Paris this year? Well, there's still a lot of really smart people at CNN, so maybe. But the reason CNN moved away and moved more toward entertainment and more toward less talking heads and more shouting heads is that they're competing with Fox News. Fox News is really calling the shots, and you don't need science and environment to compete with Fox News. That's why I say what CNN did was actually a very wise business decision. It was just a really terrible journalism decision. Uh, and so um, if that ever changes, maybe. 
if people allow Fox News to continue to call the shots, it probably won't change. Well, in the meantime, I guess we have uh, new outlets like Vice on HBO and Years of Living Dangerously, which uh, we reported on this show, has been renewed for a second season. It was on uh, Showtime. We're not yet sure where it's going to be, but uh, there is a lot of good work being done out there. And uh, one of those places is environmentalhealthnews.ehn.org. Uh, founded by Peter Dykstra. Peter, great speaking with you today, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks. I didn't found it, but I'm proud to be associated with it. Very good. Uh, my correction there. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter, for talking to us today, and keep up the good work, sir. Thanks a lot, and congratulations on 600 shows. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break here and come back with much more broadcast. Uh, But do check out that article, Want to Change the Future? Pay Attention to the Past. From Mandela to MLK to McKibben, History Offers Lessons Aplenty for Climate Activists by Peter Dykstra over at Ensia, that's E-N-S-I-A, dot com. All right, more broadcast straight ahead. Stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. Sometimes I wonder Just what am I fighting for I win some battles But I always lose the war I keep right on stumbling And there's no man's land out here But I know On Thursday night, the world lost legendary guitarist B.B. King, whose expressive style brought blues from the margins to the mainstream, says CNN. He was 89 years old. He leaves behind uh, his daughter, Patty King, and of course, his guitar, Lucille. It was, uh, boy, I don't know, uh, man, must be 20 years ago or so. I was actually working a job. I had a very interesting experience with uh, with B.B. King. Oh, Des. really? I don't know if I ever told you about this. No, I don't think you did. Yeah, he was um, he was doing a, uh, a guitar, uh, educational guitar uh, video. And uh, the company who was who was producing this this video had rented out this great big studio. And I was working. I was young. I was working as a uh, a production assistant at the time. Right. And there was B.B. King in this great big studio up on stage. They had set up a stage to look like a, you know, like it was a concert uh, venue. And uh, all of the producers were up in the. Uh, in the booth, uh, you know, talking to him via the microphone or so forth. But it was just actually me <laughs> and B.B. King. I was on the floor working, uh, making sure that the the microphone wires didn't cross, the camera wires didn't cross. So it was pretty much me and B.B. King for about four hours Aww. in my own personal concert from B.B. King as he was uh, playing a bunch of songs that they were getting for the video. And then he was, you know, talking about his his technique so it was just me and and BB and Lucille. 
you know, for, and also for about three, four hours. It was awesome. Uh, that is so cool. I don't think I did know that. That's uh, way from way back in history. From way back, yeah. And and you know, right now we actually uh, a friend of ours, uh, Hamish Anderson, is a blues guitarist. He's a young phenom blues guitarist out of Australia, and uh, he was the last person to open with BB King on his very last tour. In mm. fact, they had to cancel their tour earlier this year because he fell ill. He got to play one time uh, with. He was personally handpicked. Right, and, and like, when we heard they canceled. The door, I thought, uh oh, yeah, uh, that was can't not be good. good news. And for he BB. never played again, but no. you know, Hamish will be there. Hamish Anderson, there to carry on. There you go. Uh, so he will indeed, uh, indeed be missed, oh, but my goodness, uh, yes. his music will endure. Okay, over the um, over the past week, as investigators have been looking into what happened in that horrific Amtrak crash, uh, where now eight people uh, have died. Uh, we reported, uh, actually, the very next day. Th- this was amazing, uh, Desi. We, we covered this on the Green News Report. Uh, the, the Republicans were in a committee hearing the very next day after this fatal crash in which eight people died, 200 people were injured. Uh, Republicans were in there the very next day looking to slash Amtrak's budget in, yeah. in committee. Actually did slash uh, the budget. For the longest time, uh, Obama has been, President Obama has been requesting a much larger budget for Amtrak. Uh, and every time it comes up, the uh, the Republicans uh, force that down, force that down. And I asked you during the Green News report, why is that a green story? And what and what was your answer as far as why we were covering that in the Green News report? Uh, my story, my the reason why we were covering it in the Green News report is because mass transit and infrastructure are incredibly green stories. Infrastructure is what makes this country run, and energy is what makes this country run. Mass transit is the most efficient way to move lots and lots of people. Cars are the least efficient way. So supporting mass transit, like trains, supporting that level of transportation actually benefits it's the economy. And of course, it also has that side effect of not polluting quite as much as cars do. Yeah. And nonetheless, you know, with the jobs program that has been uh, Democrats have been trying to pass for a long time has to do with infrastructure. There's a highway bill that has not been approved by the Republicans. These are all about jobs, all about infrastructure, all about, by the way, as Desi said, improving the economy and green projects. More people uh, taking the train, more solar more uh, uh, wind uh, projects and so forth out there. And also remember that with infrastructure, those are jobs that cannot be outsourced. Until the Republicans figure out how to send a bridge to China (laughs) to get that built there, it has to be done here with American workers. Oh, there's that. Yeah, it actually puts Americans uh, to work. Well, you know, here in uh, America, we've got, frankly, of all of the advanced countries in the world, the worst train system going. And uh, this was amazing because after uh, the the uh, this uh, terrible accident uh, at the beginning of the week, uh, even Rachel Maddow, who is usually quite calm about these things, uh, even she was blowing her top about this and about the idea that uh, we can't have nice things in this country. That in Europe, she pointed out, uh, between Barcelona, uh, Spain, and Madrid, the average train speed is 154 miles per hour. They have high-speed rail there. 
Same is true in Asia. She says the trains going between Tokyo and Osaka go 200 miles an hour. And yet, when we heard that this Amtrak train had gone over 100, 106 miles per hour, everybody went, oh, okay, well, that's what happened. Something went terribly wrong. We can't have trains in this country going more than 100 miles an hour. But everywhere else in this country, they've got trains that go over 100 miles an hour. They've got trains that go 200 miles an hour. And uh, she was kind of furious about this, and I understand why. She said that for the richest, most powerful nation on Earth, for the average train speed on our Northeast Corridor to be just 68 miles per hour, something has gone terribly wrong with an otherwise great country or one that aspires to be. This, even while ridership on uh, on that train line in the Northeast has shot up more than 55% over the past 15 or more years, according to the Brookings Institution. She was furious about the fact that uh, for years, money, uh, or at least a, a bill, has been in place to put high-tech guidance, satellite uh, uh, guidance control for, to these trains. So this kind of accident can happen. This kind of accident that happens uh, f- with some frequency around the country. We now have the technology and we have the law in Congress that is supposed to apply the technology to these trains that would automatically kick in the braking system when something like this was going on. But, uh, you know, it's America. we got other things to worry about. we got to pretend there's no climate change or whatever the hell we're doing. Anyway, here was, here was Maddow uh, uh, going on about this and, frankly, hitting it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. We are a great nation that has allowed the world-class national infrastructure that our grandparents built and our parents handed down to us to erode and suffer and starve to the point that it is decrepit and deadly. And this is a failure of governance. This is on Congress's head. It is indeed a failure of governance. Our government in this country is broken. And no wonder why when when you see that, uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar, of course, with the Citizens United ruling from the Supreme Court a few years back that pretty much says that you can spend anything you want. Corporations are people. They can spend as much money as they want on political speech because that's free speech and uh, Exxon Mobil uh, and Shell Oil and all the Walmart. They all have somehow First Amendment rights, even though they can't be thrown in jail, even though they never die. Somehow they have the same rights as people. Well, the Citizens United decision is actually based on uh, a, an actual group, for people who don't know, an actual non, so-called nonprofit called Citizens United. By the way, they were the ones who uh, put a whole bunch of money into uh, confirming Clarence Thomas back in the 90s. For, and very few people seem to realize that, seem to remember that. They put about a million dollars into ads talking about how wonderful Clarence Thomas was and let's get him on the Supreme Court. And so years later, he can decide in favor of Citizens United and make sure that his wife runs a nonprofit who gets a whole bunch of uh, dark money that is unaccounted for and then can be used on elections. Yes, it all works together. Wow, they were playing the long game. Oh, yes, they were. These They, they do play the long game there. Now, uh, the mother of the founder of, uh, or the, I should say the president of Citizens United, his name is David Bossie. The mother of David Bossie was at a Republican event not long ago with Republican pollster Frank Luntz. 
at the South Carolina Freedom Summit. Just to give you an idea who these uh, Citizens United people are, or at least who their who their family members are. Uh, Frank Luntz asked, uh, well, Frank Luntz actually called on her and asked her to give advice, called on the mother of David Bossie, of the president of Citizens United, to, to give advice to the presidential candidates that she might have. Here was, uh, here was David Bossie's mom's advice to Republican presidential candidates now running. Our time is up. Which one of you is Dave Bossie's mother-in-law? Where are you? You're over here? I was told that if I didn't end with you, he would kick my butt. So I'm going to give you the microphone, and I want you to give advice to the 2016 candidates. What do they need to know? One man, one vote. People are coming in this country across the borders like rats and roaches in the woodpile. We've got, we've got a state like Minnesota that says it's not our business to check them out. We just register them. How many of you would vote for her for president? Like rats and roaches. Immigrants are not only are they like rats and roaches, but they're coming in and they're voting. Never mind that they aren't. Never mind that it's a scam. Never mind that it's a con. Never mind that uh, David Bossie's mother probably believes it's true because she's been lied to by Republicans, by Fox News, that there are immigrants, rats, and roaches coming in and taking over our electoral system. She probably believes it. I bet her son David Bossie knows better, but he doesn't care. He, Fox News, the Republicans, they don't care. They will put in place anything they can to keep legitimate, legal voters from voting. I'm not talking about those rats and roaches, immigrants. I'm talking about actual U.S. citizens. They are fighting like hell to keep actual U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens that tend to vote Democratic, unfortunately for them, from being able to cast a vote at all. And there is a spate of laws now Uh, that are being passed across the country, many of them we've talked about before, but passed across the country by Republicans to keep voters from being able to vote. We talked about one of them yesterday in Ohio that is now moving forward. There is another one moving forward in the state of Texas. And there's a bunch of uh, election reforms that will help voters to vote, help more voters to vote that are being passed in Democratic states. We will be talking about some of those laws uh, on our next thrilling uh, adventure, which I hope you will join me for. Uh, You can find our show, any portion of it, if you missed it today or any time over the past week or more at bradblog.com. Download it in full or go to Stitcher, TuneIn or iTunes and download it there. And while you're there, please help uh, help us out by giving us a good review. That helps other people to find our show. Oh, we got a lot to talk about next week. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, to my guest today, Peter Dykstra of EHN.org. Until we meet again, you can and should find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at The Brad Blog. Oh, and you can email me, bradcast at bradblog.com. Otherwise, you can find me right there at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>